Welcome back to the Home Bible Study Podcast. And we are continuing in the study of the letter to the Hebrews, and we're currently in chapter 10. Where we left off last time in verse 32, we actually spent an entire lesson just on that verse because it was so important to framing the rest of what's in this uh, final part of this chapter that um, I felt like it was worthy of us to spend extra time in getting that kind of basis because the writer is making a major transition from doctrinal type instruction to more uh, personal, this is how you uh, live the Christian life type instruction. And that verse was, you know, um, the the kind of swing that that door swings on that transitions from one place to another. So we'll do a little reviewing of what we uh, looked at last time, and then we'll get right into the study. I'd like to read the verses first. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 33. And he says, partly whilst ye were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly whilst ye became companions of them that were so used. For ye had compassion of me in my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and enduring substance. Cast not away therefore your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come, and will not delay. Now the just shall live by faith. But if any draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. Great, great encouraging words here. So we're going to con- we're continuing in this call to remember, this looking back to understand uh, the true meaning of what it is to be a Christian. And you have to understand that that's what these people, the Hebrews, were struggling with because they knew what it meant to be a Jew, to be an Israelite, uh, to be immersed in Judaism. But this is new. You know, this is the New Testament in Christ. So what does that mean? What does that look like? You know, how do we make sense of all the things that we've been promised by Jesus when he was here and what's happening to us right now? It seemed to be kind of a contradiction because the Messiah, we were told, was going to come and make everything right. And he did. He has accomplished that. But there's also this little matter of dispensations that in Christ's purpose in all things, he has an order to it. He does everything uh, in an orderly fashion. And, you know, he lives in eternity. We live in what we call time that's marked out by these dispensations. So how do you live and continue 
to uh, exist in this state that we're in now that we've been illuminated. And that's what the writer is applying. The truth that he's shared with us all through this letter up to this point, now he's giving an application to those things. Um, so we're going to continue in this call to remember. He's asking us to remember. The last time we saw this principle of truth, that after being saved and illuminated by the saving grace of Christ, that we all endured something or we will endure this great affliction. It's common. It's what we all share in Christ. It's part of who we are. Um, this is why Jesus said uh, the way to salvation is narrow and constricted, but the way to destruction is wide because the way to destruction is easy. It's the way that the world is going. It's the philosophy of the world. But this that he brings us, this calling to this salvation, this illumination that he's called us to, he says, you know, the many are called, but only a few are chosen. So it's a smaller group and they're going in the opposite direction of where the world is going. So that creates uh, conflict, right? That's what it, that's what it does. In Matthew 7, 13, 14, enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat. So what is he saying? That the way that seems right to, there's a way that seems right to a man, right? And there's a group think that everybody jumps on board with. And they're like, yeah, that's the way to go. But if it's in contrary or contradiction to what the word says, which that if it normally is, um, that's not the way. You know, we got to go through that constricted gate, that gate that's straight and constricted that, you know, has a struggle associated with it. But that's the gate that uh, we want to be on. Well, that's when we know we're on the right path. And that's what this uh, writer is trying to show us and try to show these Hebrew believers that, yes, it's hard right now. There's a lot of afflictions and persecutions that you're experiencing, but that's not that's not uh, something to deter you. That's common or part of Jesus's purpose in bringing us uh, unto him. So it's very important for them to see that through this letter. It's important for us to see it in our lives as well, because nothing has changed. We have the same enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. So we see here that the world, and when I say the world, I'm talking about this organized system, this group think, this golden thread of consciousness that everybody readily accepts, okay, that's in opposition to the word of God. That is is kind of that's the world and and it's not a friend of grace you know it doesn't like grace it doesn't want grace it doesn't need grace as far as it's concerned and so that's where we stand as agents of grace in a world that is opposed to us and that's what the writer is trying to make us to see that this is this is normal um the world system 
that encompasses everything that leaves God out. Um, think about that for a moment. We live in a world created by Jesus Christ. He came here to this world to reveal the Father to us personally. He didn't send an angel. He didn't send some messenger. He came here personally. Right? But the world rejected him. And him having done no sin, the only person to ever walk on this earth that never did anything wrong to anyone. Uh, the kindest soul that's ever existed. The most loving, right person that's ever existed was brutally murdered because of it. So that's the world that we live in. That's what we're having to face day by day as we go out and we live our lives. It's not easy, but it's reality. And it doesn't have to be easy because we have the grace of God to um, comfort us, to strengthen us, and to provide for everything that we need in spite of this world. If the world has treated him this way, then should we? what should we expect if we're going to serve him? We should kind of expect the same thing. The advantage that we have is that all of these things are filtered through his grace. So we cannot be overcome. He will always give us the grace that's needed for every circumstance and situation. But this is the reality of the true Christian life. We are soldiers on a battlefield. You may not think of yourself as a soldier. You may not think of yourself as being on a battlefield. Who wants to feel like when they go to their family gatherings or they're spending time with uh, people that uh, they've known for years that it's a battle? But that's what it is. That's what it is. Because their every intent and goal is to get you to come to their side. Right? And we know that their side is darkness, it's death, it's sin, it's engaging in activities that are evil, that that are diametrically opposed to the righteousness of God, whether they know it or not, right? So our objective in those situations is to stand, to stand in the face of rejection, of alienation, uh, to be an illuminating force for Jesus Christ because somebody's going to see that light that you're standing for and they're going to be in that darkness and they're going to go, I'm attracted to that light. I want to know what that is. And there's the opportunity for us to minister. So, yes, we do have a lot of enemies, but we're not without protection. We have the whole armor of God as described in Ephesians 6, 11 through 24. And we have to wear that armor on a daily basis. We can't take it off. It may not be comfortable to wear all of it. No, that's all right. We're not called here to comfort. We're called here to serve. So it's important that we understand each piece of that 
uh, armor and the significance of it. And I hope that one of these days I get to um, teach some lessons about that armor because it's such, so important and so it's invaluable to our success. So please take some time to uh, take a look at Ephesians 6, 11 through 24 and meditate upon those things and ask the Lord to help you to understand how to put that armor on daily. So let's get back to Hebrews here and let's see how the writer is kind of taking us back in time. That's what he says. It's a call to remember. We're going to get in a vessel and take some trips back through time and uh, see that this call to remember, you know, wasn't that long ago. It may not be very long for you. You may have just been illuminated. You may be experiencing this right now. Draw comfort from the knowledge that it gets better, that these things are coming to you for a purpose. Um, but it's definitely a shared experience. So let's take a look and continue starting from verse 33. For, like at the verse 32, we're told to remember about how when we were first saved, we endured all these afflictions. And then in verse 33, he's going to start breaking it down and say, you know, specifically, what were those afflictions that we we uh, experienced that are shared experiences? He says, partly part of that uh, shared experience was while you were made a gazing stock. Now, we don't use the term gazing stock very often in our modern vernacular. So it's important to understand what that means. Now, the writer is giving a very accurate and detailed account of what everybody, all of these Hebrew believers experienced. He knew firsthand what they were going through and what they experienced during that time. Okay, but it's also what all believers experience that we have in common. Our conflict with the world, the flesh and the devil is multi-level. It comes to us and is experienced in all these different parts. And this is one part of it. He says, partly you experience these, this great flight of afflictions. Partly you experience this while ye were made a gazing stock. So first you were singled out. That's something that happens to you. When you have been illuminated, when you have been called and saved, and now you are a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are placed upon a hill in whatever environment you're in, and you will stand out, even if you don't want to. Now, I'm the kind of person I hate to stand out. It is not at all something I desire. I'd rather kind of be in my own little world in a corner somewhere doing my own thing. But guess what? That's not possible because I serve the Lord Jesus, and he doesn't want me in a corner. He wants me where I can do the most good on his behalf. He wants me amongst the brethren, encouraging them unto love and good deeds. He wants me in whatever place I am, be it my home, work, a grocery store, wherever, he puts me out where I can be seen because he wants me to minister and testify on his behalf. So first, he says, you were made a gazing stock. That means that you were singled out. Uh, people are going to start talking about you. 
They're going to talk about how different you are. After you're illuminated, people are going to notice. They should notice. If you were illuminated and nobody notices a difference, you need to question whether or not you were illuminated. Okay? Because people will notice the difference. There is a difference between a corpse and a live body. Okay? So it says we were dead and then we were made alive in Ephesians. So once you're illuminated, you go from death to being made alive and people will notice the change. The more you interact with people on a personal level, the more they're going to notice the difference because your motivations, your wants, your desires are different. So you are made a gazing stock and isn't this true for the Lord Jesus? Was he not made a gazing stock upon that cross? He was a testimony to the world. Uh, the sign above him said, the king of the Jews in Hebrew and in Greek, in the Roman language. So he was a testified testimony to the world of what it was that the father was doing in him. So, of course, we're going to be made a gazing stock as well. That's what we're called to. That's why the writer is telling us this. It says that uh, you were made this. This is something that we were made. It's part of our salvation that we're made. There's a purpose in God's work, and he is making us into something. He has a purpose that he will accomplish in us and that there's a process that he is using through god the holy spirit through the word of god through our walk through our relationship this intimate relationship with jesus we're being made into something else something amazing we're being made to be like christ here we see that you know we didn't seek this out this is something that God does in us and through us. It's not, nobody goes to say, hey, you know, make me a gazing stock. That's not what we do. Um, that's something that God does in us. This is an action that is done outside of us, uh, outside of our direct influence. So it's a work of God, the Holy Spirit. Because of the light, the illumination that is in us, we become noticeable. And the more we live lives that are righteous and stand for righteousness, the more we stand out, the more we get singled out. Uh, and with being singled out comes an attack because guess who notices us at this time? Before you're saved, when you're dead, Satan doesn't care about what you do. You're dead. You're already under his influence, he is the one who had, you know, he, through sin, he had the power of death. So once you're dead, you're already under his power. He's not paying attention to you. You're going to do whatever it is that he wants you to do. That's what the word says. But once that you've been illuminated, now you're alive in Christ. Now you've been singled out. Now the powers of darkness are like, whoa, that's an enemy. So that's when the attacks come from outside, completely unprovoked. There's nothing that you need to do for these attacks to come. You don't have to provoke them. They're just going to come. 
That's why we need to be wearing that armor to protect us. And so don't think it's strange is what the word said. This is the way of the Christian walk. Uh, in John 15, 18, be not afraid, Jesus says, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. These are hard things to swallow, right? That Jesus would make us a gazing stock. He would put us out for everybody to see and to shoot at, right? And to hate on. Wow, that doesn't sound attractive. Well, think about his life. What about his life was attractive? It's not that the life we live is one that we completely enjoy, right? This is not the aspects of our lives that we enjoy. But we can experience these things and have joy in Christ. That is the power of our lives. That's the ministry. That all these things happen to us, but we rejoice. We continue to rejoice in spite of these things. That's the illumination that is so attractive to a lost and dying world. To those who are... Um, without hope, that when they see the hope in us, they want to know what is that? How is that? How do you accomplish that? And that's where we have the opportunity to minister and to possibly show them the Lord Jesus in us, minister the gospel to them, and see God use that gospel message to bring them from darkness to light, just like He did us. That's the exciting part of this life that we live, that we have that opportunity. But it starts with us being made a gazing stock. So it says you were made a gazing stock. Uh, this word means to be made a spectacle or to be exposed. Um, this is the first attack. Those who knew you before, before you were saved, they're going to seek to defame your new stand, you know, by pointing out any and every mistake that you make. So it's like we're always being watched because you say, you know, you're righteous and you're living, you know, for God. You know, well, they want you to be like you were, like they are in darkness. So they're going to be looking for you to stumble, to fall. But that's OK, because God is able to keep you. No matter what they're looking for, even if you do fall, it's okay because Jesus is there. We have a great high priest that picks us up and tells us it's okay. You keep going. And so that's just how it is. Even if they uh, do make you a gazing stock, even if you do mess up, don't let that defeat you. You just understand. You commit that to the Lord Jesus. You confess to him. And he will give you everything you need to overcome that and keep going. Because at the end of the day, even if you're socially alienated or they do make you a gazing stock, Jesus is the one that matters. We should always be more concerned about what Jesus thinks of us than anyone else. And that's the key to overcoming that. You know, the, you think about it, those who are closest to you, 
will be the hardest, I think, for me. They were the hardest ones to minister to because they were the most uncomfortable with the change that happened to me. Um, some of them even sought to discourage me. You know, there's like, you're way too zealous for Jesus. You know, what's really going on? And they try to draw to make me suspicious of, of what God was doing in me. Like, are you sure, you know, that you're, you know, what you're saying? That doesn't sound like what I've been taught is in the Bible. Well, of course not, because you don't even pick up the Bible to read it yourself. You just take what everybody says. And I'm pointing out what's actually in Scripture. Well, that sounds really odd to me. You know, that's the response you might get. But that's the same tactic that was used in the garden when the serpent told Eve, oh, no, God is lying to you. You're, you're mistaken. You know, he, he no, you, you can eat that fruit because he knows once you eat it, you'll be just like him. So it's very important for us to understand that the tactics have not changed because they work so well. But the way to overcome these things is to know the word of God and to take a stand. So this is what happened to the the Hebrew believers in the church of Jerusalem. They were made a gazing stock. People pointed them out and they alienated them for their stand for the truth. So it's important for us to understand that's, that's a common experience. Uh, and that's what the writer wants us to remember, to recall some of us who've been saved for a while, we forget that. We forget the details of those experiences. And, you know, we're, they're so far back, you know, that we've, and the Lord has been so faithful and given so much grace in our lives that we can forget what that felt like. But we need to remember, not only for ourselves, but also for those who may be experiencing those things so that we'll know how to, to encourage them unto love and good deeds. So it says that we were made, uh, in verse 33, a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions. So what is this? What are reproaches and afflictions? Those are words that we don't use commonly in our day-to-day -day, uh, vernacular. So I wanted to look them up so that I could get a good understanding. So to be reproached, here, that word means to be defamed, right? Um, I think the the um, best word we use now to, to for defamed to be misrepresented, to for things to be said about you in a negative light, right? That means to be defamed, right? It's the opposite of making someone famous for positive things, to defame them, to uh, maybe you were in a group where you were very liked and very popular, but now that you're a Christian, they're like, hey, you know, whatever those things that you liked about them, they're not good anymore. They're, they're one of those Jesus freaks now. You know, that guy used to be a great athlete and I really enjoyed watching him perform, but now he's all focused on Jesus and, going around, you know, ministering about how that, you know, talking about the gospel. I mean, that's the way they'll represent you. That's that's the reproach or to be defamed. And it says also 
uh, made a gazing stock through afflictions. Here's that word again. And this word for afflictions means uh, to cause pressure or trouble, to surround you with pressure or to create a situation of trouble for you to have to deal with. And not because of something you did wrong, but because of the things that you're doing that are righteous, righteous in the sight of the Lord Jesus, righteous in the sight of God. And this was happening to the Hebrew believers, to the, the church that was in Jerusalem, and it's going to happen to anyone who seeks to live a life that's, that's righteous in the sight of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says that, uh, that these are just parts of the ways that, you know, all of us who are believers experience this uh, affliction, this great affliction through this main gazing stock. And it says, um, also, it says, partly while ye were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions. Then it says, and partly... Another part of it or an aspect or facet of this, these afflictions, because they're multifaceted, they come in different ways and experienced by all of us, but in different ways. And it says, and partly while she became companions of them that were so used. So we had these, we experienced these individually, right? And also... When we become companions, when you align yourself with other believers, with other people that are standing for the Lord Jesus Christ and for the truth, then you are going to suffer the same persecutions, the same troubles that they're experiencing. And so that's kind of challenging, isn't it? It's kind of a way that discourages you from fellowshipping with other believers because of the negative connotation that may be placed upon them. But guess what? You stand with them because you have a common bond in Christ. You have a common experience in the Lord Jesus and it makes you stronger. It makes them stronger. And then you can encourage one another unto love and good deeds. But you will suffer that same alienation that they're experiencing by aligning yourself with people who love the Lord Jesus. The key is to make sure that these people are believers that you're aligning yourself with. Because you certainly don't want to suffer um, as a result of being aligned with people who are not believers. And it's really easy to do. So, you know, be careful who you make your companion. Make sure they are people who share your beliefs, the beliefs that are established in the word of God, not just people who you think share your beliefs, but ask them what they believe. Ask them about their salvation. See if they have experienced the same things that you've experienced. And thereby, you will know that they too have been called and illuminated. Um, a lot of times, I think believers, especially new believers, they don't do the homework to make sure of this. Uh, 
I mean, you're, it's because you're at a point where you're so desperate for um, companionship and fellowship because you feel like you've been alienated that anyone who says that they're a believer, you're just so happy and you want to latch on to them. But be careful to make sure that you test the spirits and make sure that there is this common commonality and that only commonality that is required is the love of Christ. That's it. Now, they don't have to know the Bible up and down. They don't have to be uh, super saints. They don't have to even know a lot about the Bible. The only thing they need to know is Jesus. You know, the saving knowledge, that intimate knowledge of Jesus. And uh, that's all that's needed. And from there, you both can grow in grace together. So very important to understand that there's uh, different parts to these afflictions. And these afflictions come in a multifaceted way. Uh, verse 34, we see kind of a very personal application from the standpoint of the writer. This is where he starts to get really personal from his perspective. He says, for ye had compassion of me in my bonds and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and enduring substance. So here's where we learn that the writer is in jail. That's what he's saying, in my bonds. He's a prisoner. So that sounds very much like the letters from Paul, you know, those prison epistles. And this was probably written around the same time that those prison epistles were written. Uh, in one of the um, prison epistles, he asked, uh, I, I want to say it was in one of the letters to Timothy, maybe Second Timothy, I'm not sure, I'll check. But he asked for them to bring his cloak because he was in that Mambertine prison and it was cold there uh, and damp. And he also asked for the parchments so that he could study. And I want to I wanna believe that he studied those parchments and they helped him frame this letter because there's so much about this letter that looks back to the Old Testament and really brings together the experience of the Christian in the New Testament and the experience of the believer under God in the Old Testament. So that's one of the reasons why I lean uh, to Paul being the writer of this uh, particular letter. But clearly he says in verse 34, for ye had compassion on me in my bonds. Um, um, here is where the Jerusalem saints were exhibiting what I was speaking about in the previous verse, they became companions of him. They're, they didn't say, oh, well, Paul's or the writers in, uh, of this letter is in prison. We don't have anything to do with him. We got enough trouble. We have all these problems that are being caused to us. And now this guy's over here in prison. We got to worry about our own problems. That's not what they did. That is not faith. Faith and love and compassion that comes from the Lord Jesus works itself outwardly. 
it is something that can be seen like a light of illumination. And here we see they took action. Their compassion took action. And it was expressed to the writer while he was in his lowest point. And here again, we see how that fellowship works, how that they use their gifts to express this compassion to him in a time where he really needed it, in spite of the things that they were enduring. And it says, uh, for ye had compassion on me and my bonds and took joyfully. So the attitude that they went about was not, okay, I guess we got to do this. Oh man, what about my own problems? Now I got to deal with this guy? No, the evidence that these were true believers, that they had really been called of God through Christ is that they had joy in spite of the things that they were experiencing. Even though they were experiencing great affliction, they focused on the joy. It worked out in them joy. And it says uh, that, for ye had compassion of me and my bonds and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods. I mean, think about that. That means that even when they had almost nothing, right, then to take what the little that they had and share with him in this prison, they did joyfully. Not like, oh, we're not going to have anything how we live. No, we're trusting that God is going to provide for us. And we want to help our brother here in this time of need. And that's what true Christian faith does as it is an action of compassion and being worked out in us that it express, it allows us to express love to others joyfully in spite of what's going on. It says, and, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing, how can they do that? How can they express this kind of joy in those circumstances? This is how, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and enduring substance. How did they know that? How could they know that? They knew that by the testimony of God the Holy Spirit in them, assuring them, assuring them through faith that, hey, it doesn't matter what I don't have, God is going to take care of me. Jesus is here to provide for me, so I'm going to provide for my brother. I'm, he, he's in a point of need. And that's the impetus that should be in us when we see someone in need. We should, have, we should definitely pray about it. God, how do you want me to serve and help this person? And when God directs you, you go in faith, full of faith, and joyfully give whatever gift it is that you have to share. Do it joyfully right? With great joy. Why are you so joyful? Because you know that what you're doing is pleasing to God. That should bring you joy. Every opportunity you get to do anything that pleases God should be the fountain of joy in your life, right? Because you know in yourselves that ye have in heaven, 
You know this. It's not something that you think might be there. You know it. You have a strong witness of testimony through God the Holy Spirit, and you know in yourselves that ye have in heaven something. Something's there. What? A reward? Uh, something better than what you have now? Something better than this world can offer? Okay? A better and enduring substance. You may not know what that substance is. You may not know the details of it, but you know it's there. And you know that by faith. So the evidence of a believer, the, the truest testimony of a believer, that somebody is a believer in Christ, they act and they live a life of faith. They take action. Their faith has works. You will be able to see that faith being worked out in their lives. We need to live a life that people can see our faith. We shouldn't have to go beating people over the head all the time saying, I'm a Christian and I do this and I read the Bible. Okay, so what? What does that mean to me? Nothing. But when they see our lives being lived in such a way, in the joy that we have in spite of what's going on. They, they, they tend to ask, well, how is that possible? How can you do that? Then we have an opportunity to tell them. It's because I know in myself, because of the witness of God, the Holy Spirit, and the word of God and what it says, that I have in heaven a better and enduring substance. That's a powerful witness. But it's not hard. It's not complicated. It's not full of doctrinal whatever. It's very simple. Because I know in whom I have believed it. And I am convinced. I am convinced. In all that he has said in his word is true. And it applies to me. And I have something better than anything this world could offer me. And it's all in Christ. This is what we need to remember. That's what the writer is telling us. That our citizenship is in heaven. This life that we're living right now, even though it's full of hard-pressed trials and tribulations, it's only a passing phase. Okay? As we transition into eternity. We have to remember that. When we remember this, the world really seems shallow in comparison to our heavenly calling. When we really meditate upon that, it makes it puts everything in its proper place. When Christ is in his proper place in our lives, our minds, our focus, then everything else comes into focus as well. You know, a lot of people say, well, you shouldn't spend so much time on the internet or you shouldn't spend so much time playing, doing a hobby or golf or doing whatever, and your life is out of balance. Well, once you have Christ, when Christ is in the right place in your life, everything else balances out without any effort. So that's really the issue. Where is Christ in your life? Where, where is he in importance? And he says, seek ye me first. 
put him at the very first of your thoughts, of your deeds, of your actions, your motivations, and everything else works out. Everything else works out properly. In verse 35, he says, Cast not away therefore your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. So he's saying, now that you see um, these actions that you're doing and the joy that you experience and the hope and faith that you have before you, he's saying, don't cast that away. Don't lose that confidence. Don't take your eyes off of Jesus. That's what he's saying. Once you get that focus and you start living this life of joy in spite of everything else that's going on because of your hope in Christ, hold on to that. Don't let it get away from you. Don't let the world, the flesh, or the devil take your eyes off of Jesus. Cast not away this confidence because it, had a, it has a great recompense of reward. Now, what that reward is, we don't know. But I tend to believe that Paul, which I believe is the writer of this uh, letter, he knows. He knew at the time because he had already died and gone to heaven and was brought back. So he had a perspective. And if you think that that's not good enough for you, go look at the book of Revelation. It has a few things in it about our rewards. Uh, think about the crowns that are mentioned throughout Scripture by Paul. These different... These different crowns that await us um, that we can't even fathom what they represent and what they mean and how that each one of these crowns is going to be a great reward. And what makes the reward great is not that we're going to get it. It's that we're going to get it and we'll be able to give it back to Jesus. That's what makes it great. And the, what we do here in this life, these things that we do when we live a life that's faithful and we hold on to this confidence, the reward is great in relationship to pleasing God, to pleasing the Lord Jesus, that we will hear, well done, thy good and faithful servant. If that's not your motivation, if that's not the great recompense of reward that you're looking for, then you need to adjust. Because there is no greater reward than to have God testify to you living a life that's pleasing to him. There could be no greater reward. And we have the opportunity to store those kinds of things up for eternity. And all we have to do is not cast away our confidence. Very, very, very important. So we talked about the fact that there's affliction associated with this life, yes. But the way it's described by Paul in relationship to this reward, he says, notice our light affliction, 2 Corinthians 4.17. Uh, what we experience now in the form of these trials, in the form of being made a gazing stock, none of this could compare to the reward that is 
waiting for us. And we have to let that encourage us to continue on. We have to be encouraged by that. Because all of these things have a purpose. It's not without purpose. And I think that's what we're going to see here next in verse 36. It says, For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. So, that when he says might receive, that's not, well, it may happen. That is so that you may receive the promise, right? But we have the need of patience. Patience is important. Patience is our ability. It's not the patience like I'm going to be patient and wait on something. It's a patience that speaks of an active pursuit of hope, Right? Uh, patience that says that I'm going to do these things. I'm going to continue to rejoice and do these things and live this life in a joyful manner, not because I love experiencing being made a gazing stock, not because I love affliction, but because I love Jesus. And I know that I am pleasing him in doing these things that are right, that he says are right. Not because he wants bad things to come to my life, but because it pleases him that we would serve him in the light of the world, the flesh, and the devil being against us. That we would take a stand for him. That's love. That shows our love for him. I mean, surely we can understand that. So we have need of patience. And the reward or the result of this patience, well, after you've done the will of God, right? Because this patience is going to tie directly in with us and the will of God for us, that we will receive the promise. There are certain promises that he made to the nation Israel. And they were, they were promised the land, the seed, and the blessing. They will receive them all, right? There's going to be a thousand year kingdom in which they will uh, be on earth and the Lord Jesus will rule over this earth in his second coming and establish that kingdom, that thousand year reign. And they will receive every blessing associated with it. And that's what he's encouraging them with. Hey, you will receive the promise after you after you completed the will of God for your life. You will receive this promise. And it's also a direct call to those who are believers that are Christians in the church age and that we will receive heavenly promises. They, we, we're going to receive them. We, there's a time in which we have to work. We have to be soldiers and carry out this ministry joyfully. And we will receive these promises. Trials and reproaches and afflictions are the pathway, that constricted pathway that we were told about. They're the pathway to patience and endurance. We need the spiritual muscles uh, to do the will of God. We cannot accomplish his will without spiritual muscles. Once you're illuminated, 
you start working out. You have to be made stronger and stronger so that you can fulfill the ministry that God has called you to, that he's called me to, whatever that is. And we need to be able to grow these muscles so that we can encourage one another, right? Unto love and good deeds. That's part of what we do as members of this body of Christ. We encourage one another. Um, we will, by the grace of God, receive the promises. They are ours. There is nothing that could separate us from his love. And his love is the greatest promise that we've been given. And nothing can separate us from it. And all the other promises come from that love and from that relationship. So we will receive them. Verse 37, it says, For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not delay. Uh, the world is being reshaped right before our eyes. We have wars and everything else, diseases, everything that's going on. The alignment of nations and rulers, even as it's spoken of in the book of Daniel and Ezekiel and Revelation. This is all happening before our eyes. We can see this, these things developing. The next prophesied event to occur is the rapture. And we're closer to that rapture now than we've ever been, right? For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come. So we have the next event is the rapture. Then immediately after that comes the seven years of tribulation. Immediately at the end of those seven years, the Lord Jesus comes back to this earth to establish his 1,000 year reign. Okay. And at the end of that, we have the eternal state where all things heaven and earth are made to. That is the program that we've been given. And in just a little while, it says, in just a little while, he that shall come will. So in the light of this truth, how should we be living? If that's the case, if we know that he could come at any time, that the rapture could occur, he'll remove the church from the earth, and then the um, tribulation will start. Since we know that could come at any time, even while I'm recording this, it could come. How should we be living our lives? How do we want to be found when that occurs? Well, verse 38 describes how that should be. It says, now, while we wait, while we endure and wait and grow in patience, while we encourage one another, while we consider Jesus, now, and this time, the just shall live by faith. At that time, we'll, be, uh, we'll receive the promises. But now, in this time, the just, or those who are righteous, those who have been justified by Christ, those who have been illuminated through salvation, the just shall live by faith. So then we will receive the promises. But now, today, we will live by faith. That is what we've been called to do. And so there was a danger here for those who were experiencing these hard things uh, in Jerusalem, in that Jerusalem church, to say, this is too much. I can't take it. 
We have the same danger with us today. There's some that are like Demas. They're like, this is too much. Or like, you know, John Mark, uh, when he originally went out with Paul, that I can't take it. This is too much. I'm going back to whatever my life was before. But those people find out that you can't go back. There's nowhere to go back to. If you are truly a child of God, you will find no place of acceptance other than in his, in his care, in the Lord Jesus, in his hands, in his arms. Uh, that's the only place. Like the prodigal son who went out into the world, he couldn't live like a pig. He couldn't live that way. He may have gotten down with the pigs, but he could not remain and live like a pig. He went back to where, to his father's house, where he belonged. And that's how it is for all believers. But there was a danger here for these believers to want to fit back into society and to go along with and get along. And he says, no, now you have to live by faith. And, but if any draw back, and he said, Any, anybody who may be hearing this uh, lesson or anyone who may be reading this letter that he wrote, if any draw back, he says, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. Right. They, we can't please God by going back. We can't please God that way. And our goal should always be to be pleasing to the Lord. We want to hear, well done, thy good and faithful servant. And we can't do that by looking back. We have to look forward, press on to the high calling. The character of life of the believer is to press on to the high calling in Christ. This is how we please God. To not move forward is to draw back. There is no being stagnant. Either you're moving forward or you're moving backwards. It's progression or regression. Those are our only two options. So if we want the joy, if we want the hope, if we want the endurance and the patience that come from it, we must press forward. And to encourage us, uh, the writer writes in verse 39, but we are not of them who draw back. He's like, that's not who we were called to be. We've been called to press on. And he's, he's identifying that. He's encouraging these believers to say, hey, that's not what we were purposed for. That's not why God illuminated us to go back. He illuminated us to go forward. He says, but we are not of them who draw back unto perdition. Okay? Because there are some that will. There were some that were in this with these believers that, you know, were suffering with them. And they look like they were believers. They seemed to be brothers and sisters in the faith, but they weren't. They were like um, Judas amongst the disciples. And just like Judas, he drew back unto perdition. And there are going to be others who will do that. There may be people that you meet in your Christian life that do that. I don't know. But those of us who are saved, we are not of them 
who draw back unto perdition because we've been purposed unto salvation and a heavenly calling. And, you know, that's the encouragement. We're not of those who draw back under perdition, but we are on the positive side, them that believe to the saving of the soul. What is the evidence? Belief. What is the life? Faith. Where is the direction we move? Forward. So he's saying here clearly to them to remember who you are. Remember that Jesus has called you for a purpose and illuminated you for a purpose. Yes, you, you experience some trials. Yes, you're going to experience trials. But Jesus has called us to a ministry and a purpose. Now, I'm telling you to joyfully press through those trials and by his grace, fulfill your calling. Do the work. Study the word. Call and lean upon him in God the Holy Spirit. And we will receive the promises. Let's close. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace and how that you have called us to a purpose. And in spite of the things that we face and the challenges that are before us, um, these things, as we grow in grace, become smaller. And we, de we develop muscles, spiritual muscles, that when these things come up, they don't alarm us anymore. We know we can count on, and count on you and trust you and you're, you're faithful. You've been faithful to us. And so these huge things that once were scary and frightening, they're not as frightening anymore because we've developed these spiritual muscles and we've our endurance has led to patience and the patience and ho to hope. And we see in this hope, the manifestation, the full manifestation of the illuminating love that's in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it encourages us to face whatever comes knowing that we have this uh, great reward awaiting us. And it becomes more and more real to us as we grow in grace. And Father, we long to be with you. It makes us to long to be in your presence. And we get excited just thinking about it. I pray, Father, that you would encourage us all this way and that you would glorify yourself and the Lord Jesus in your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.